Tink Thompson, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Very glad to be here. So you were a tenured professor of philosophy at Haverford College, which of course is a great uh, Quaker institution, and the author of two books and a collection of essays on the Danish existential philosopher Søren Kierkegaard. And you gave it all up to become a private detective in Bolinas. So I want to ask you, what happened? Oh, dear me. Well, <laughs> I once told a reporter that Nancy and I were the kind of standard California success story. We came out here, I was a professor. She had been a curator and a sculptress of various things. And now I was a private dick and she was selling real estate. <laughs> so I don't think that change is ever, is ever easy or rational or whatever. By happenstance, I met uh, probably the dean of American private detectivery, Hal Lipset. Had dinner with him and hit him for a job. He thought this would be great. Because here he had the professor from prestigious Eastern College looking for a job at five bucks an hour. So the lefty professor was immediately assigned a labor dispute where, where Lipset was working for management. And I was, I was offered the job of tailing these union guys around the Oakland docks. And that's what I did for several months. They were shooting out, the, it was a cable, Focus Cable was a, a cable company. Labor dispute, the workers were shooting out the, the, the transformers on the lines and burned down a warehouse and various things. And that's one of the opening stories in this yeah. remarkable book, Gumshoe, Reflections in a Private Eye, which is a beautiful uh, literary piece um, that got great reviews, uh, and that is wonderful reading for anybody who wants to follow you. So, but let's start for a moment back at Haverford with Kierkegaard. Mm -hmm. Who was Kierkegaard and what is his significance in the history of philosophy? <laughs> Certain Kierkegaard's dates are 1813 to 1855. He uh, was what we'd call upper middle class, I suppose lived his whole life in Copenhagen. It was a life that was actually almost completely bare of events. Nothing happened to Kierkegaard, seemingly ever. He um, got what was the equivalent of the PhD, but it was in theology. And Kierkegaard began in the 1840s writing a series of works under pseudonyms. And those works are what are studied now in philosophy courses around the world. Subsequent to that, he then continued to write books, but they were devotional uh, in character. Um, Kierkegaard is uh, described as one of the founders of existential philosophy. What I loved about it was his sense of humor. One of his remarks is, uh, a man is about to do something upon which the, the whole destiny of mankind depends, and at that point a fly lights on his nose. 
<laughs> was this wonderful Danish sense of humor, which Kierkegaard directed precisely at the pomposity of the speculative philosopher, the Hegelian speculative philosopher, and uh, his torpedoing of the pompous professor is a delight, an absolutely delight to read. I was very sympathetic to that, because if the truth be known, I was never more a philosopher than Donald Duck. Uh, I never believed in the basic project of philosophy, which is, hey, you can figure it out. I never thought you could figure it out. And for that reason, I was always drawn to Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Marx, Oh, Sartre, Heidegger, Meloponti, the, the, the existential tradition. And I guess that's what's, what was realized out here, was a move from professoring to detectiving, and a move from a kind of comfortable middle-class life into a life that was much closer to the life lived by I was going to say existential hero, and then, then I caught my tongue. But a life that uh, was grittier and uh, in some way more real than the life I knew at this prestigious and precious Eastern College. In a conversation we had earlier, you talked about the difference between the moral issues facing a faculty member at Haverford and the moral issues facing a detective. Could you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, at Haverford, the, there were all the political issues, the anti-war movement and all the rest, but the highest moral issues, I suppose, would be if somebody didn't get tenure and got unfairly treated. Well, that's a lot different than, than the world of the detective. Um, for example, there's a there's a uh, a case recounted in Gumshoe where um, a young woman had her child stolen by her husband, who returned the child to India. She was at the Zen Center, and I was hired by her and her lawyer and the Zen Center. Baker Roshi, in that case. Baker Roshi, it was indeed, to get the child back. Now, the moral issues there are enormous. I mean, certainly she had custody in this country. Fine. You go into a court in India. You serve the father. We knew where he was. You serve the father with an order to show cause why the child shouldn't be returned. And he splits. So, so there, was, there was no legal way at that time to, to remedy this situation. So I ended up, huh, the old professor, I ended up walking into a motel room in Bombay where he had been tied up, feet and hands, and tape across his mouth By on my orders. Yes, right. And uh, we held him for 22 hours uh, until we could get safely out of the country and then released him. He then told our operative, who we released at the same time, in such a way that he would think that he was still his friend, not our operative, 
he told the operative he was going to come back to to the U.S. and kill the mother. So that then required hiding the mother, etc. So uh, it was a completely different, a completely different world, and a, a world of moral ambiguities that were unthought of by either Kierkegaard or me. Now, I love that narrative from philosophy professor dealing with abstracts to uh, private investigator dealing with life and death matters. But as I read through your work, there were, there were hints of what was to come. Uh, for example, you were a Marine, weren't you? No. I've got that wrong. Didn't you go, somebody said that you uh, were in the military, do I have that right? Yeah, I was. I, okay. was, uh, I was in the, the Navy in the late 50s. I was in Underwater Demolition Team 21. And which, did you go into Lebanon? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we had the... Yeah. So you went into Lebanon and were involved with the beach issues uh, in the... Yeah, uh, UDTs were designed during the Second World War to do beach reconnaissance on the day before the landing and to blow up beach obstacles, do commando raids, plant right. mines on ships and things like that. Um, yeah, that and that experience in Lebanon uh, turned me around politically. I was Andover, Yale. The family were Taft Republicans, right? So how the hell do I end up in the anti-war movement in the 1960s? Well, because of what I saw in uh, Lebanon. But also, while you were a professor at Haverford, instead of simply writing about Kierkegaard, you also wrote a really extraordinary book called Six Seconds in Dallas, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, was, uh, the, the subtitle is, A Micro-Study of the Kennedy Assassination Proving that Three Gunmen Murdered the President. This was a very detailed taking on of the Warren Commission's findings, and, uh, and it was well-received. Uh, Life magazine did a major piece on it. Uh, the uh, Post, which was then a, a prominent magazine, did a piece, uh, Three Assassins Killed Kennedy. Uh, my father, the political columnist Max Lerner, uh, you pointed this out to me, uh, wrote a column about it saying, more careful and more powerful than the Warren Report. It was not until this book that I became clear in my mind about some kind of collaborative shooting and about the trap that had been set for the president. So this is not typical for a philosophy professor at Haverford, right? So there were these, there were these precursors of becoming a private eye. There was the marine experience, which took you to the left, but also was certainly a experience, I'm sorry, not the marine, the, the, the Navy UDT, experience. Yeah. But also there was this decision to, to take a huge amount of time to do what was in effect a almost a private eye case study of what happened to Kennedy with enormous detail. Um, one correction. Life magazine didn't write a piece favorable to six seconds. I worked for Life, and I actually worked on this, on this issue, okay. which was grounds for reasonable doubt. This was the first break in the establishment view of the Kennedy assassination. And... Uh, when Six Seconds came out, they tried to stop publication of the Post, failed, and then sued <laughs> me and Random House. And so why did they guy. sue you? For infringement of copyright. Because you used the uh, film that they had custody of? Was that the one? Indeed. I stole the Zapruder film. <laughs> okay. And uh, 
but not in a legal sense. Right. Uh, so, but as you look back on it, isn't it fair to say that the decision to do this piece of work was, in some sense, deeply linked to what later made you into a private investigator? Well, in the sense, maybe I was bored with philosophy right. and had to find something else to right. do. I mean, it could be as simple as that. I mean, uh, I don't think that there's anything very grandiloquent. Uh, the, the route to that book started in jail in, in Philadelphia, where uh, the sheriff at media had said, if any of those anti-war people come into my district, I'm going to bust them. So another professor and I went out and into his district and handed out American Friends Service literature against the war. We were arrested for littering. And the ACLU lawyer who came and bluffed us out of there was a guy named Vince Salandria, who, whose articles on the Kennedy assassination I had read back at Yale. And Vince and I hooked up, and we started going to the archives, and we started putting together an article, and blah, blah, blah. And finally, that ends up with me being hired by Life as a consultant, and ultimately the book. So it's, it's all of these things. When I think of, of the accidents in human life that move you from here to here, and you're never aware of the importance of the accident when it happens. Only in hindsight can you look back on it and see that something happened there. Now the Kennedy assassination yeah. continues to fascinate you. You're thinking about it now, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, uh, you folks know the name Errol Morris. He's a wonderful filmmaker. He did a... a a funny, funny film called Gates of Heaven on pet cemeteries. And then he did The Fog of War on Robert McNamara. He's done one uh, film on Abu Ghraib. Uh, he also writes for the New York Times. His piece was in the New York Times this last, last week. Um, Errol Morris called me up a few months ago and has always been wary of the Kennedy assassination uh, as a swamp that you get into and you never get out of. And I uh, said, that's, that's pretty sensible. And I offered a, a, uh, a way of operating that made sense to him. So we're, I may take the next two or three years to return to six seconds, mm -hmm. uh, to return to that with the backing of Morris. So. I must say, for me, in, in reading Six Seconds, um, I'd been aware of the debate about whether it was a conspiracy or not. Um, and because of my personality, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't gone too far into the, uh, into the conspiracy literature, although I had begun to believe it. But this book um, has so much uh, detail about why it was simply physically impossible that it was one shooter shooting from one place. And it's such an extraordinary reconstruction um, that um, it's interesting just culturally that the assassination, that the conspiracy perspective still hasn't taken really full hold with the American people, it seems to me. I think it's partly due to the 
was it Hofstetter who wrote the uh, essay on uh, the paranoid, paranoid yeah. in American politics? The paranoid right. style in American politics. Um, mm -hmm. The internet is just filled with junk on the Kennedy assassination. And the whole history of this case is that the, the debate has been put forward again and again by advocates, largely lawyers. One, one person advocates one thing and another person advocates the opposite. No first-rate American historian has touched this case, gotten anywhere near it. And the reason is, I, I think, because of the intensity of these, of these verbal battles back and forth. Um, I, I couldn't care less who did it. I never have cared very much who did it. It was just a puzzle. I wanted to know what happened. And it seemed to me that that's a different sort of question and is not necessarily, a, has anything to do with conspiracy theory. I just wanted to find out what happened. Well, how could it not be a conspiracy if there were three shooters? Well, fine, but but <laughs> that's not a theory. I mean, that, this what what I wanted to develop was not a conspiracy theory, right? But a theory of the event, right? And once one has a theory of the event, then it seems to me then you can go on from there. It seems to me the three questions: what happened? You have to answer that one first. It still hasn't been answered. The second question is, who did it? And the third question is, why'd they do it? Well, I've never been interested in the second two questions, only the first. And um, the first is still open. And so you may, with this remarkable filmmaker, spend the next few years reconstructing that question. Yeah, because you need some money. The, the real problem here is, there has never been a really scholarly, scientific effort here. I mean, even the, the House Select Committee, when they received unambiguous evidence of a shot from the right front, that is the acoustics evidence which showed the one shot had been fired from the front, they were running out of time and running out of money. They could only study one of the four shots that were uh, discerned on that tape. So time and money has always been the problem. And may be an overwhelming problem. I, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Now, as a private investigator, you've worked on a whole series of remarkable high-profile cases. These included the Patty Hearst kidnapping, mm -hmm. the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, some work with Tony Serra, if I remember mm -hmm. co right. correctly, and some work with Bill and Emily Harris. Is that the mm -hmm. same as the Tony Serra case, or was that separate? No, Tony Serra. Well, no, Tony Serra was. Well, Tony Serra did end up. <laughs> he ends up as the attorney for everyone, I think. Right. And he did end up finally at the end of this most recent SLA case. He did end up as the attorney for. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start with the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Who brought you into that, and what did you do? I was working with David Fetchheimer. Who was? And David Fetchheimer is a very probably the most distinguished American private detective. Um, he, he trained me. <laughs> he was my mentor and we're tight friends to this day. He works out of San Francisco, has most recently worked in Yemen on the case of the Guantanamo detainees and, uh, and other things. Um, I was his operative. I was his gopher at that point. 
And he originally worked with Lipset as his junior he, partner. He was Lipset's junior and partner. And Lipset is sort of the dean of, of the detective world, and, and, and then Feldheimer is... Fetchheimer, right. Fetchheimer is, right. The, yeah. Right, right. Hal uh, died s several years ago. I see. And uh, so uh, that was a case that came via Susan Jordan, was Emily Harris's attorney. It came via Susan Jordan to David, and uh, David gave me the job of reading everything. So. so what were you asked to do? Nothing much. There was no investigation. They pled. I mean, basically, my job was a, was a clerk's job, going through the, the file, uh, writing up a kind of, of pricey as to what was... But you were the, hired by who? Susan Jordan was either the court-appointed or hired attorney for Emily Harris. I got it. In the first kidnapping. Uh, Susan hired David. I was David's employee. I got it. So... And what did you learn from the involvement with the Patty Hearst kidnapping? What, what was the sort of learning for you about it? You know how crazy the SLA was. Mm -hmm. We were really off the wall nuts. And, uh, Symbionese Liberation Army. The Symbionese Liberation Army. Right. And this, this all came out of a whole era here in the Bay Area. The era of the San Quentin, San Quentin Six, August 21st, 1971. There was an escape attempt at San Quentin. George Jackson and four or five other people were killed. Um, Stephen Bingham was the attorney who visited Jackson that day. Oh, this was, I mean, the, the Bay Area, when you arrived here mm -hmm. in 1972, was a very strange place, don't you think? <laughs> Yes, indeed. Don't you think? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So you also worked on the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. What were you, who hired you there, and what were you asked to do? Um, I was the defense investigator, along with Fetchheimer. Uh, we were independently hired by Stephen Jones as um, uh, Tim, Tim McVeigh's defense investigators. And we worked from December 96 six until the trial was over in uh, late June. I see Stockton Buck here. So as an ex-FBI agent, Stockton, I've got to tell my one FBI story. So you'll excuse me, Stockton, but this, but this is a good one. Here's, we, uh, the bomb truck that blew up the building was rented in Junction City, Kansas and was, according to the authorities, was loaded with explosives at a nearby lake called Geary Lake. Well, what we learned was this narrative that the FBI, in investigating the case, figured that there might be evidence in the lake. So they either they used their scuba team or they hired some other scuba team to go diving in the lake to determine whether there was any evidence there. And in doing so, they rented an exact duplicate of the Ryder truck used in the bombing. So they drove out, parked it right by Geary Lake, and then their divers went diving, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they drove away. Two days later, 
the FBI's crack crime scene search unit came on the scene and very carefully took casts of the, of, the, of the tread and measured the tread and did all of this, right? Oh, man. So my job was find The FBI kept, kept all news people well away, like half a mile away. But there was one photograph published in an obscure Kansas paper that showed that rider truck parked down there. So my job was to run that down. I found the photographer. We had this nailed. I had the, had the negatives. I had the, the, uh, an affidavit from the photographer. We were just waiting for the FBI to introduce into evidence, right, the plaster casts and the measurements of their own truck, right, as proof that the bomb truck had been, had been played. In the event, uh, it was never used. Mm. The, the, the prosecution cut back its case, and that was never used. But with some of the, that's sort of the fun you get in this business, you know. Now, um, in your in your book, uh, Gumshoe: uh, Reflections in a Private Eye, uh, Dashiell Hammett's Maltese Falcon plays a recurrent role. Uh, why so? Well. Um, Fetchheimer, before he became a detective, was a graduate student at San Francisco State, getting an advanced degree in American literature. He read The Maltese Falcon. He called up Pinkerton's, which was the employer for Hammett back in the 20s, and asked him for a job. And they said, buddy, you got a beard? He said, yeah, I got a beard. He said, okay, we got a job for you today. Come on down. <laughs> So he, he was working undercover in a, meat, in a meat packing plant, and that's how he started out. So Fetchheimer, later on then, began to go after Hammett as a detective would, not as a literary critic, but as a detective, and found out all sorts of stuff about, about Hammett. And had you participate in this? Yeah, and then, then uh, from time to time, he would give assignments to me to, to, to look into Hammett. And I read the Maltese Falcon, and I thought it was—I thought it was kind of junk. I thought it was kind of hard-boiled fiction, that kind of junk. And then, the more I talked to Fetchheimer, who was a real literary guy, the more I saw that this—that this was quite different than the other works that Hammett did. Uh, that it was a masterpiece, and that it—it it became almost a kind of—how to put it? It sounds stupid. But a kind of handbook, a kind of handbook as to how to get along as a detective. And uh, I think more than that, uh, The Maltese Falcon was published in 1929. A Farewell to Arms was also published in 1929. And I think when you look at both those books, you can find uh, a lot more than a family resemblance. That both those books are struggling with uh, a kind of fundamental sort of loss of confidence, a loss of faith. I want to read a paragraph. Can I yeah, read please. a paragraph to you from um, Farewell to Arms and relate that to this is a very, very famous paragraph. Uh, 
it's about the only thing that means anything anymore, or not the big words. I was always embarrassed by the words sacred, glorious, and sacrifice and the expression in vain. We had heard them, sometimes standing in the rain almost out of earshot, so that only the shouted words came through and had read them on proclamations that were slapped up by bill posters over other proclamations, now for a long time. And I had seen nothing sacred, and the things that were glorious had no glory, and the sacrifices were like the stockyards at Chicago if nothing was done with the meat except to bury it. There were many words you could not stand to hear, and finally only the names of places had dignity. Certain numbers were the same way, and certain dates, and these, with the names of the places, were all you could say and have them mean anything. Abstract words such as glory, honor, courage, or hallow were obscene beside the concrete names of villages, the numbers of roads, the names of rivers, the numbers of regiments, and the dates. Well, I think that, that paragraph really articulates a kind of outlook which is pretty much the same outlook as you get in the Maltese Balkan. And, um, you know, I could play literary critic and pull passages out of the Maltese Falcon that, uh, that make that, that clear. But the, the point that the, the hard-boiled detective character, he doesn't figure things out. That's for... That's, that's for a different kind of detective fiction. That's for Agatha Christie, for the, for the English drawing room. That fiction starts out with the hero being faced with some sort of illusion, something that's fictitious. And uh, the detective is such a smart mother, right? he sees the one thing that's out of place, the one fact that doesn't fit with the other facts. And so his brilliant powers of ratiocination lead him through, right, lead him through the illusion, the fiction, to the truth. The butler did it or he didn't or whatever. Yeah. Well, Chandler said that he took uh, murder out of the drawing room and put it in the alley where it belongs. And that may be uh, exactly what Hammett did, too. That if you look at the Baltese Falcon, you can't figure it out. At the end of the book, you don't know what happened. And neither does Spade, right? Neither does Spade. And there's a, whatever. There's this wonderful ending in the, in the Falcon where it turned. Now you remember. I don't know. You remember what happened? Bridget O'Shaughnessy, using a fake name, comes and hires and hires Spade, Spade and Archer. Right. Within 12 hours, Archer, in doing what the client wanted done, is dead, killed. Right. Right. And then. From there on, this long story involving Bridget O'Shaughnessy and, and the Peter Lorre character and the, 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 goes on and on and on. Right? And at the end, Spade is, 
has been attracted to Bridget O'Shaughnessy all the way through. And he has this final wonderful kind of encounter with, with Bridget, which in a way says it all. And let me just give you something of that. Um, she says, you called me a liar. Now you are lying. You're lying if you say you don't know down in your heart that in spite of everything I do I've done, I love you. Spade made a short, abrupt bow. His eyes were becoming bloodshot, but there was no other change in his damp and yellowish, fixedly smiling face. Maybe I do, he said. What of it? I should trust you? You who arranged that nice little trick for my predecessor, Thursby? You who knocked off Miles, a man you had nothing against? in cold blood, just like swatting a fly for the sake of double-crossing Thursby. You who double-crossed Gutman, Cairo, Thursby, one, two, three. You who've never played square with me for half an hour at a stretch since I've known you, I should trust you, no one. No, no, darling, I wouldn't do it. Even if I could, why should I? Her eyes were steady under his, and her hushed voice was steady when she replied, why should you? If you've been playing with me, if you do not love me, there's no answer to that. If you did, no answer would be needed. Blood streaks spades eyeballs now, and his long-held sp uh, smile had become a frightful grimace. He cleared his throat huskily and said, making speeches is no damn good now, which is the bookend to that, to that uh, thing from. He put a hand on her shoulder. The hand shook and jerked. I don't care who loves who. I'm not going to play the sap for you. I won't walk in Thursby's and Christ knows who else's footsteps. You killed Miles and you're going over for it. I could have helped you by letting the others go and standing off the police the best way I could. It's too late for that now. I can't help you now and I wouldn't if I could. She put a hand on his hand on her shoulder. Don't help me then, she whispered, but don't hurt me. Let me go away now. No, he said. I'm sunk. If I haven't got you to hand over to the police when they come, that's the only thing that can keep me from going down with the others. You won't do that for me? I won't play the sap for you. Don't say that, please. She took his hand from her shoulder and held it to her face. Why must you do this to me, Sam? Surely Mr. Archer wasn't as much to you as... Miles, Spade said hoarsely, was a son of a bitch. I found that out the first week we were in business together and I meant to kick him out as soon as the year was up. You didn't do me a damn bit of harm by killing him. Then what? Spade pulled his hand out of hers. He no longer either smiled or grimaced. His wet yellow face was hard and deeply lined. His eyes burned. He said, and this is one of the most hilarious parts of the book. He said, listen, this isn't a damn bit of good. You'll never understand me, but I'll try once more and then we'll give it up. Listen, when a man's partner is killed, he's supposed to do something about it. It doesn't make any difference what you thought of him. He was your partner and you're supposed to do something about it. Then it happens we were in the detective business. Well, when one of your organization gets killed, it's bad business to let the killer get away with it. It's bad all around. Bad for that organization, bad for every detective everywhere. Third, I'm a detective, and expecting me to run criminals down and then let them go free is like asking a dog to catch a rabbit and let it go. It can be done all right, and sometimes it is then, but it's not the natural thing. The only way I could have let you go is by letting Gutman and Cairo and the kid go, etc. That's hilarious. I mean, I mean, what? This is not, 
Sam's paid developing a moral code. This is ridiculous. It's bad for business, right? Right? And it's that ironic twinge on the end of the falcon that, that makes it work. So that ironic twinge, and in one of your essays in the book you edited on Kierkegaard, mm -hmm. the essay, if I remember, was called Master of Irony or yeah. something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's that linkage uh, when you think about the gumshoe as existential hero between Kierkegaard's irony and the irony of Sam Spade. Well, here's the problem, and it's a problem, it's a, it's a, a very real problem at the base of language. If one wants to say ultimately all this is about is about how to put it, language is failure. I mean, in the 20th century, it seems to me that's where philosophy ended up. That uh, not just that moral codes could find no justification or foundation, but that uh, language itself did not refer. And that is at the basis of all, now look, I can't give you a solid metaphysical argument as to why metaphysical arguments don't work, right? I can't give you a solid argument. You see how silly that would be, right? I mean, if I believe that arguments don't work, that language doesn't refer, I can't in language make that case. That's why silence, silence is so important here. And what, what you do find is that Spade is a man of few words. My mentor, Fetchheimer, was always a man of very few words, right? It's the uses, the uses of silence. Because as, <laughs> I guess the point is, as detectives, we know things never do work out as we expect them to work out. They never do work out as they're theoretically supposed to work out, right? So we're always doubtful about almost any claim that comes our way about the world, because the world always, in our experience, always surprises. Fetchheimer taught you to pay attention. Yeah. And he meant something different by paying attention than what you originally understood. Yeah. Uh, and he gave me that advice as I set out from the Lipset office on a motorcycle to tail guys around the Oakland docks overnight for two days, right? And what, what he meant by that was pay attention to where you are what you're doing, who's looking at you. There's always surveillance. <laughs> you get sensitized to odd things, like the movement of drapes. There's always the little old lady, right, looking out her window and wondering, what's that man doing in that car sitting there? Right? Well, if you see the drapes move, it may be that the little old lady has spotted you and that she'll call the cops and you'll be... It's that sort of mm -hmm. a thing. That's what he meant, paying attention. 
So as a private investigator, uh, as you became uh, immersed in the tradecraft of it, there was a shift in consciousness. Yeah, because, it, yeah, there was a shift. Yeah, I was no longer the dumbass professor at some point. Um, if you take that advice from Fetchheimer, those two words, pay attention, and you ask what do they mean then and what do they mean next, later on, what they meant later on is again the lesson taught in the Maltese Falcon. Distrust your client. Because Bridget O'Shaughnessy, the client, gets Archer killed. And it's true. The main jeopardy you have in, the, in private detectivery is via your client. Because the only thing you know is the client's version as to what happened. Now here's a, something that's not in gumshoe. Remember the India case? Okay, we go to India, we kidnap the six-year-old kid back. We tie the guy up, we do all this. Whew. Man, we get back into the US. I am so proud of myself, I can't stand it, right? And then I get a call from the mother's therapist. Oh, thank you, so wonderful what you did, blah, 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 blah. And then she said, but you know, Jackie's psychotic. Huh? Okay, now look, I don't think she was psychotic, right? But the therapist did, and she told me that. So suddenly, with a few words, everything shifts. I've gone halfway around the world, spent 20,000 bucks. Uh, Dan Mirror, forget what happened in India, but it would, it, could not have, it would not have been good, right? Done all this, right? Come back enormously proud of myself. <laughs> yeah, you're right, did it, right? and then find that what I actually had done was to kidnap a child from a loving father who had taken her back to his home in India and deliver that child to a psychotic mother in the United States. Now, that's, that's the way it really is, right? Now, and, you know, if she wasn't psychotic, she could have been, right? I wouldn't have known. And so the oddity uh, for what the private detective does, I'm looking right at Staunton because this, working for the government, this is, this is a different thing, but, but privately, right? <laughs> your version of events you're getting from your client. And at the outset, you have no way of getting around that. And the greatest danger in this racket is to be in somebody else's movie. That's what happened to Archer. Archer got trapped in somebody else's movie and ended up dead. And that's always, that's, that's always the threat. And the point is, just as there is no clear seeing that's possible, the awful ambiguity of immediate experience is totalizing. In now that's a quote, isn't it? The awful ambiguity of a Yeah, that's thing. from Robert Penn Warren, Brother to Dragons. I used to use it in dates 50 years ago with college girls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Uh, they thought it was profound. <laughs> so, so it sticks. Speaking you know? of profound, uh, yeah. when I came over to chat with you yesterday, yeah. uh, you told me you were reading a, a remarkable book uh, by Paul Fussell mm -hmm. called The Great War and Modern Memory. It won the National Book Award. Uh, this is the illustrated edition which you have. Uh, it's about World War I and its impact on consciousness. And uh, you've alluded to this already, but as I understand your, your basic thesis, it is that, and I think you sort of, Fussell and many others agree with this, but it's a, it's a point that I hadn't fully grokked uh, before, which was that, that the Great War fundamentally shifted uh, cultural values in the direction we're describing, from values of heroism and uh, nobility and virtue to the kind of existential perspective that uh, was represented by th that early detective fiction and is so prevalent in the world today. And um, I wanted to, uh, and, and indeed when we think about, I think this is in Fussell, he talks about the, the, our current situation as the kind of uh, the normalization of this atrocity that goes on all over the world now, that mechanized warfare has created just this endless war, in a sense, where uh, this kind of thing is taking place in different corners of the world constantly. And as I was thinking about it, I was reflecting that the mechanization of war and the global environmental apocalypse that uh, seems to be upon us uh, have a congruity about them, that not only do we kill people with the mechanization of war, but we all are living in this time of climate change and, you know, a thousand other technological evils, um, where, um, where in, sort of in a slow motion sense, what happens in war is happening to the earth as a whole. And I thought to myself, well, on the one hand, you have outlined the kind of existential response, uh, and I think it's very real. But what fascinates me is that the existential response has by no means been the only one in the post-wars period. There is also what you might call the sort of new romanticism that is very prevalent in West Marin, to, uh, and which I share in some ways, which really does uh, return to a sense that values are possible, that truth is possible, that beauty is real, that, uh, you know, that the whole ethic of uh, trying to create a just and sustainable world is one in which the master narratives of the 19th century have in some sense returned. And so I wondered if you had reflected on both uh, the, uh, the triumph of existentialism but also the counter-movement toward a return to, uh, to great values, uh, and what you thought about it. How long is it since July 1st, 1916, right now? It's 94 years. Right. On July 1st, 1916, in the Somme, I think the British Army lost 40,000 casualties in the first half an hour of their attacks on the German lines. 40,000 casualties. That swamps the imagination. I mean, when now you lose six in Afghanistan, and you hear about it on the evening news. 40,000 casualties in the first half an hour. 
So I guess my answer is, well, it's 94 years from then. So maybe there will be a recrudescence of truth, beauty, and the belief in ideals and foundations of morality. I don't know. I guess things get forgotten. Uh, horrors get uh, shoved into the back of one's memory and are no longer present. My, uh, I mean, I, <laughs> this is not the place or the time or anyhow for a, a final discussion as to whether the existential view of the world is true or not. Uh, I think it is. You don't, I, I take it. And I'm not sure I would say that I don't think it's true. And just as you said, neither of us could make a narrative argument in words for whether it's true or not. But empirically, empirically, uh, existentialism is not the only powerful narrative taking place among thoughtful people oh. in the world today. Uh, empirically, uh, there has been an effort um, to rediscover, and one could say that the, the basis of it might be in nature itself, a narrative that says, uh, a narrative that says any narrative that does not allow us to say that the destruction of nature and this beautiful world is an evil, any narrative that does not allow us to say that is not a narrative to live by. And therefore, I think there are many problems with the existential narrative, and it's not that I don't like it, mm -hmm. but one is that it doesn't give people as a large community a, a satisfying and trustworthy narrative by which to live and raise children and have a civilization. In other words, it's not a great narrative for civilizational norms, let's put it that way. And then secondly, at a a more uh, contemplative level, uh, it really doesn't respond to the catastrophe of the earth and what shared vision or narrative we need to have in order to respond to that. So it's not, I'm not making a claim that the existential perspective is true or not true. I'm just not sure that it's operationally effective either as a civilizational level or at an individual level in responding to the slow motion ap apocalypse with which we're living. Okay. Um, I think my, my reply would be, in Spade's words, I won't play the sap for you. And I think that is the reply of existential philosophy to the kind of arguments you make. Namely, that lucidity. The unwillingness to be hornswoggled by one's beliefs. To be taken to the cleaners by what one hopes to be the case, but... There's no proof of the case. In other words, I won't play the sap for you, is the, is, is the one sort of primordial uh, axiom of this, of this position. Now, it may very well be the case that certain beliefs produce wonderful things for the community, produce all sorts of functionality and this and this and this. But... If they violate the principle, I won't play this app for you. Uh, <laughs> there's something else. So I think that's, that's, where it, that's where the rubber finally meets the road here. If, if, that, if that axiom is, is accepted, then all sorts of things become unacceptable. If it's not accepted, then of course, all sorts of other things become acceptable, become 
perhaps, uh, you know, uh, very good things to have. Tig Thompson, thank you for being with us at the new school. Thank you. So.